Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. And we're going to talk about books, but we're not going to talk about Scotch. Ethan, Hi. welcome. Thank you. This is, um, sorry to say, it's the end. Listen, considering that we were literally just talking about the game Betrayal at House on the Hill, in which... <laughs> You pretend it's a pretend cooperative game where someone becomes a traitor, and then you did this like creepy welcome delivery, and now you're talking about the end. Like, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm like being too paranoid or something here, but uh, I'm not super comfortable with the direction the show's going. I think you are being too paranoid because the thing is, it's all arbitrary. So, um... wait, what's all? What's all arbitrary? anything and everything and whatever i say um see that's not okay that's not comforting (laughs) like that's not a i you said that sentence like it was supposed to make me feel better and it doesn't oh oh it didn't make you feel better even though it should have and your inner monologue for yourself is denying yourself the comfort that you really want to feel this is like in every sitcom made after 2010, there's an episode where someone learns what active listening is, um, <laughs> and then they do it really bad and wrong. Actually, I lied about the timeline, because Malcolm in the Middle had an episode that was that, and that was from like 2003 or something. Yes. But Malcolm in yes. the Middle was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. But this is not the Malcolm in the Middle podcast, even though Michael keeps trying to make it be that. <laughs> I will say it was right in the middle of its time. I'm hanging up. <laughs> we have to, between this and like your creepy energy before, we have to start this episode over. But if we started it over, I mean, would that be the beginning or would this be the beginning or would this now be the new end? I don't know. And Since everything is arbitrary and it, that's all we have. We're just arbitrarily going to choose. Wait a second. You're doing the beginning of the book. And... I'm so angry at you. <laughs> Um, so Ethan, what scotch are we drinking today? Or should I tell you? Uh, you maybe you should tell me, because I'm mad at you. It's, uh, it, we're still drinking this scotch that we were drinking, uh, for the last book we discussed. It is Highland Park 12-year-old Viking Honor Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. So, yes. yes. That's all I have to say about that. I, it's been, it's been a while since we recorded the last book um just to peek behind the curtain on that a little bit and like i've been avoiding drinking much of this scotch because i wanted to save it right but i have been wanting to get back to it so well i'm glad that within you saying avoiding drinking much of the scotch there's a tacit admission that you have drunk a little bit because i definitely have (laughs) but i did save most of what was left after our last recording good good and then we now we forgot to do the thing about like how we've been drinking it this entire six week period. Oh know. yes, it's been anyway. you know for uh, two months that we've been drinking this scotch straight. There you go. Thank you. Not sleeping, just drinking scotch. Um, so with Oof. that uh, admission of our irresponsibility, let's get your wife in here to read the rules. Hey wife, don't judge me, but come read the rules. <laughs> 
Rule 1. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule 2. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thanks, Life. Now, it's okay. Uh, Like, because I'm 32 now instead of however young and foolish I was when this podcast started, like, you saying, just as a fiction, you saying, like, not sleeping, just drinking for two months, like, (laughs) it just hurt my insides. I yeah, <laughs> I I'm I'm with you there. Um, this uh, this wedding that I was at this last weekend. Um, yeah. One one of my youngest cousins, I think he's 22. I think he just graduated college, which like is insane because I remember when he was born. I remember when he was a baby. Yikes. Um, like he, we saw him walk by with one beer, and we were like, he's not old enough to drink. And then uh, throughout the night, um, he he kept track of how many beers he was drinking by just stacking the plastic cups inside of one another. Oh, sure. And um, he had a good um, uh, two inches um, of just the rims of the plastic cups stacked <laughs> on top of each other. It's not counting the volume of the cup itself. Sure. Two, two, two inches of just the, the, the rim, um, which is somewhere in the teens of beers yeah that's too much like and i'm not saying this as a responsibility thing necessarily i'm saying it as like like from a bladder perspective like like i could i don't understand how that was possible i i have a vague memory in my brain of sometime somewhere around 10 years ago that maybe i could have done something similar well that's what i was i wouldn't have enjoyed myself the next day Right. No, that's sort of where I was going with that, is like, I... But I wouldn't have died on the spot. (laughs) Right. And when I was younger, I could have, like, drunk that equivalent amount of drinks, but, like, I don't think I could ever drink that much beer, because Uh if the drinking didn't get me, the the peeing would. (laughs) Yep. Like, I've always had to, you know, on times of, of celebration, such as weddings or... Uh, uh, college graduation parties, or being physically present in Ireland, like I've, I've, you know, had 
a decent number of beers in a row but it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna party that hard at some point you have to switch to whiskey or something just to like not be peeing every half hour mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so anyway yeah this has probably been the most times i've said the word p in an episode which for us is actually pretty impressive it is actually um so just to 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 cover my butt here i'm not going to offer my wife a drink because she's sleeping so okay well at least you've acknowledged the rule and there we go can i'm no longer holding that in my back pocket for when i inevitably just say the name of the podcast for no reason right right (laughs) oh so with that l'chaim shlancha So yes, Ethan, as was hinted uh, numerous times, the book we are discussing here today is The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. This was your pick, Ethan, and um, we have a tradition of uh, once in a while treating one another as a hostile witness. Sure. Uh, And so, Ethan... um, I'm I'm not going to be super eloquent that way. I'm just going to say defend yourself. <laughs> um, well, I don't... What I may be doing, or what I may be about to say, might be a defense. I'm going to say it's a defense if you look at it from the correct perspective. Um, and as a white male, I, of course, think that the correct perspective is mine. Um, mm-hmm. But... So, like... Yeah, this is this is what I have to offer as a defense. And whether you consider it a defense or indeed a further indictment of myself, my character, my actions and my tastes in literature, um like is obviously up to you. I mean, you're the host so you can do what you want anyway, but um Oh, of course. Uh yeah. So, basically what happened here is uh we had this period, so we're recording this very early in 2022. Um, right. We had this period that is both like a while ago and not very long ago at all at this point, where um, even those of us who were introverts and spent a lot of time in the house already feeling anxious about stuff, we're spending a lot more time in the house feeling anxious about stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And... I, you know, I thought to myself, well, obviously one thing that one can do under such circumstances is uh, do some reading that one has been meaning to do. And um, I thought to myself, what better to sort of uh, palliate a period of time of life where, uh, you know, feeling alone and feeling um, uh, sort of great deal of existential dread um what sort of better way to address that than to read perhaps five novels in a row by um one of the the novelists of the 20th century sort of most known for um provoking sort of a questioning of existence and existential dread and for exploring topics of like loneliness and alienation Mm -hmm and such things um because like some people uh some people some people and i do i have that tone on purpose some people 
when they're reading, they want to escape from whatever circumstance they're they're in. They they read as sort of an escape. My philosophy, and this is sadly less of a joke than it's going to sound like, but my philosophy has always been to just sort of read something that really just sort of drills down into whatever I might be feeling mm-hmm. uh, in a given moment. Um, like times when I've are you familiar, Michael, with the movie Five Hundred Days of Summer? Yes. Um, times, like, the greatest frequency with which I have watched that movie in my life has always been after a breakup or something similar. Like, it at one point blew my mind when someone told me, like, they didn't want to watch that movie because they had just been broken up with. And I was like, that's, isn't that exactly that's when the you... the perfect time for yeah. you, right? Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, um, I did all of that to myself. Uh... Uh-huh. I have no greater excuse or defense than the pretty weak-sounding one that I just gave. Um, and, you know, I don't, like, there's some great... So I think I read... I think I read five of them. Um, I read Power and the Glory, The Heart of the Matter, The End of the Affair, The Comedians, uh, I think The Third Man or one of his other sort of more spy thriller ones um yeah so uh but so i and, and, you know there there were a lot of what i was expecting in in those novels very much you know 20th century questions of of ex- existentialism identity man's place in the universe um uh alienation you know the those sorts of things um and and uh i was glad i read those um, but then I got to the end of the affair, and it wrecked me in a way that I can only compare to, as far as books we've had on this podcast, till we have faces. Okay. Um, like, it just emotionally devastated me in a way that, A, I was not expecting, um, mm-hmm. B, I was certainly not expecting from this author, uh, and C, I immediately thought to myself, well, I have to put Michael through this so you're, um, you're saying you had this experience yes uh this encounter with this thing that uh caused great havoc and angst and pain in your life and you needed to share it yes so, exactly that's that's fantastic uh, uh yeah so i just knew especially out of the graham green novels that i had read and there are a handful of others that i still mean to read mm-hmm. um I just knew that this was the one that was going to make it onto the podcast sometime. Sure. Um, I didn't necessarily know when, and uh, partly because of just how Catholic it is, or or Christian generally, and how much that like aligns with my own worldview. I was actually that actually made me more reluctant to bring it. Um, sure. Just because I didn't want it to feel like I was trying to do propaganda or something like that um but i think i mentioned this in the episode where we introed the end of the affair um that another podcast uh that covers books whose name uh the history of literature um did a single episode where they had two people talking about this book and how it was both of them honestly both of their favorite novels and both of them were avowed like like i think they self-described as agnostics um you know very much not christians and that combined with just sort of 
uh felt like a season for a short novel going into advent and i don't know all the and christmas and all the busyness that that brings um Mm -hmm. i guess those two things combined together to prompt me to bring this one at this time fantastic and that is my defense that's your defense fantastic well um so i i i don't know that i knew much or anything about graham green when i came to this book um like i might have heard the name a couple of times here and there but um i i'm intrigued by this catholic author uh who as i understand it was converted to catholicism not necessarily later in life but um from some sort of atheism or agnosticism yeah um he i i i to compare trajectories it sounds similar to c.s lewis yeah Um, or even uh w.h auden yes um, yes 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 we've talked about now i should which they would be more or less contemporaries yes absolutely all all of those men i mean there's maybe some overlap um yeah there's maybe 10 to 10 years worth of difference one way or the other but right certainly yeah uh oh certainly a lot of overlap more overlap than Mm -hmm. that um and i should i should caveat here that um graham green's status as a catholic novelist or a christian novelist is more problematizable i don't know if you were about to say this michael but uh more so than like a c.s lewis or even an outen or like a um uh like evelyn waugh or some of those other Mm. mid-century british like catholic or christian novelists like graham green i don't know if he ever used the term cafeteria catholic but um that's probably what he'd be called today uh sure he sometimes self-described as like being a manichean catholic i don't know if that's Man- yeah manichean um, manichean yeah and that's something that uh was in the introduction to this yeah book, yeah yeah was mentioned about his manichaeism that he even like was okay or something with that label yeah um, but, i mean i think it maybe comes from something he said or wrote about himself right Um, oh oh there it says green's faith would always be heterodox and his work comes marked by more than a touch of manichaeanism yeah which that okay so that right there i I don't know this in in introduction writer who um, yeah here but so that just to to pick apart that word before we this is you know a trend that we do in in our first episode before we get into the book itself we kind of touch the periphery and so that's what i'm doing right here um just manichaeanism he doesn't write manichaeism which sure. is the the label for that heresy um, sure that um um is effectively a dualism um with uh the the idea of evil and good consistently being there that there's absolutely no um will uh, in a human being, in either a spiritual plane or a terrestrial plane, uh, fate governs everything. Absolutely everything is Manichaeism. Um, there, there's a, sort of a, a Gnostic uh, duality between flesh and spirit in Manichaeism. Yeah. Um, but that's all Manichaeism. By saying Manichaeanism, right. that sounds like it's not actually Manichaeism. It's just like the flavor of... Yeah, and I, I've certainly... So, I think... 
you got I, I sent you the penguin edition of end of the affair yes. right yes um the introduction by michael gora and and so i think every copy i got of a green novel um had it was was a penguin edition and and they all had introductions that were all fascinating um and they were all by some heavy hitter in some field like not necessarily people who are household names but certainly people who should know something about what they're talking about um Mm -hmm. you know michael michael gora looks like he has his PhD from Stam- Stanford and, uh, you know, has written several uh, novels about, uh, or rather nonfiction works about the English novel and mid-century um, novels after after Empire, like, the you know, after the British Empire fell, presumably, you know. Um, and so, but what I was going to say is, like, every single one of these introductions, like, was fascinating. And some of them I agreed with more or less, and some of them certainly disagreed with each other. Sure. Um, and so I have between the, those and the episode of um, the History of Literature podcast and just other stuff I read about Green, I have a wash of information about him, you know, Great. floating around in my brain, but I don't necessarily know where all of it comes from. Like sure. some of it probably is from this one and some of it's from others. Um, and all that is to, and, and that's the extent of my Green scholarship, so it, which is yeah. not very extensive at all. Um so that's all to to flavor what I'm about to say, but the impression I have of the idea of of Manichaeanism, um, which he, you know, which comes up periodically, is much more specifically to do with the idea that good and evil are almost equals. the The idea that, yeah, um, uh, you know, and, and that seems to always be associated like with the context of where it comes up. I don't know if there was more to it um the the you know the writers i've i've read haven't just gotten into or or you know just that was green wrote about elsewhere or whatever but um it always seems to be that that idea of good and evil almost like like each have 50 percent of the of the picture or that right evil has um you know has an equal footing with good which is very much outside of sort of traditional like catholic and lutheran and other you know uh uh both both you know catholic and protestant traditions of religious philosophy tend to be evil as much more like a like a corruption or a rot right Um, and as i was saying this i was trying to find i actually found the passage i was looking for for once which is on page 47 in the uh the edition that I think we both have, um, where the the narrator says, I have never understood why people who can swallow the enormous improbability of a personal god boggle at a personal devil. Yep. Um, and to me, that's like, even the first time I read this, I've now read this twice, um, that was like one of the standout lines right from the beginning. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, just, it's just like one of those lines that crystallized in my head and... and you know, I've always remembered. And to me, that's, and, and, you know, that's not to discount the other possibilities, but to me, that's like where the, where the idea of Manichaeism uh, presents itself most, most readily from what I've, have read. Gotcha. Now I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that Manichaeism, Manichaeanism here in, yeah. in this perspective, but I do want to take just a moment here 
to give our listeners a chance to read the book. Thank you. Um, and as as we'll as we'll make clear from here on out, you don't have to do what we're about to tell you to do, gentle listener. And what we're about to tell you to do is to pause the podcast, go read the book, and then come back and keep listening. Uh, theoretically, you've already read the book if you're listening to a podcast about the book, or but maybe you're you have the podcast because you haven't read the book and maybe you want to know more. But just basically, this is our way of saying spoilers ahead. Um, so pause the podcast now. And now you've come back and you've read the book and or you haven't but, bothered by spoilers. But you've you have even if you haven't read the book, you've paused the podcast and sort of taken a moment to center yourself and sort of made peace with the fact that you're going to find out stuff about the book from here on in. And that's also fine. Exactly. Um, so just to briefly run down the plot of this book, just to cover our bases here, and you can feel free to disagree with me on this. But then I'm going to talk about Manichaeanism, so I'm not going to give you any quarter to interrupt me here. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, so it, this this narrator, um, oh shoot, I already forgot his name, Morris um, Morris Bendrix. Yes, um, is uh, a man who has had an affair with a woman named Sarah Miles, um, while doing research for a book he is writing uh, on her husband. Not, like researching with the help of her husband, Henry Miles. Um, and so they have this torrid affair that was over before the beginning of the book. But then we hear the history of that affair and he still has feelings for her when uh, he encounters her husband and her again. And there's a whole private investigation mystery novel type thing going on where they're trying to figure out who she's having an affair with now. Turns out she's having an affair with religion. And <laughs> <laughs> that troubles everyone because everyone's like, no, but atheism. And then uh, she dies and the narrator's like, I'm still not converting to you, God. Uh, get away from me forever. Um, how's, how's that sound, Ethan? Uh, you missed one key part about okay. the ending um but okay. it's something that like i want to bring up and discuss at some point as a whole discussion unto itself okay. um i basically I, 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 I would have inserted one sentence into your summary just now but other than that sure. i think you did a great job giving us sort of the the drunk history version of uh, a drunk history broad strokes broad drunk strokes uh yes. after after 14 beers um, oh man i thought i was gonna get you <laughs> um so if you had okay, been me just now you would have gotten me probably that's yeah mm -hmm. i uh i am just that much better than you wow um, i was literally oh. i was literally like placing a bet in my own head if that if you would say that sentence and i lost because <laughs> i thought you better lost. of you than you did so uh, hopefully that hurts. Hopefully that stings a little, but it does. It burns a little going down there. Is that what's um, burning? I don't going know. down. I don't know. Interesting. I don't know. Um, so Manichaeanism. Yes. Um, I I want to look just to to prove that I've read the book. I'm going to 
look at the first paragraph or the last paragraph. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe maybe the first two paragraphs. So you're every um, uh, every English teacher's dream. Yes. Uh, so he he does bookend it. Um, I I want to look at the second paragraph first, uh, where he talks about all this hate that he's feeling. And right in the middle of that paragraph, he says, "So this is a record of hate, far more than of love." Um, which when you know the title, it's the end of the affair. So you know that like love of some sort has a part to play, but hate also is connected there. So this is a record of hate far more than love, which is getting at that idea of dualism as well. Yeah. And the, if you've got that Manichaean dualism involved here, then that hate and love are not so far separate from one another. Right. Um, then you turn to the last paragraph uh, of the book, and he bookends that statement by saying, I wrote at the start that this was a record of hate, and walking there beside Henry towards the evening glass of beer, I found the one prayer that seemed to serve the winter mood. Oh God, you've done enough. You've robbed me of enough. I'm too tired and old to learn to love. Leave me alone forever. Um, so you've got hate and love in that paragraph once again, and he's kind of swearing off this idea of love, and pledging himself to hatred of God, leave me alone forever. Um, which, now I'm going to prove that I actually did read the book. Because throughout the book, that's something that we find out is going on with Sarah, that she is rebelling against God. Um, I think it's in like her darkest moment, um, where, where she's most opposed to the idea of god that she turns to him in prayer and that winds up being the mode for her conversion and so here what i'm seeing here like i, I think the novel is deliberately ambiguous at the end um as far as where bendrix is um but i think it's leaning very heavily towards this idea that because he so vehemently venomously hates god God has one in the end. Um, right. It, because which... it's that passion of this duality of love and hate. He's got that hate there. And so that's one in the same in a certain degree, certain sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it calls back to places earlier in the book where... Uh, um, where basically I, i'm trying to remember if it's if it's sarah's uh uh atheist mentor i don't know if that's if that's too yeah yeah too uh broad of a of a way to describe him um where he's he basically I, i'm trying to remember if he says it or if uh if bendix says it um but it's something to the effect that like it, it's dangerous how vehemently she hates god or something because that's like or no i think it's bendix maybe in his internal monologue there's something along the lines of like i can't hate you because that would be too much of an admission that you exist yeah or some, something to that effect that, uh, that comes up a couple of times that that yeah concept. yeah it's it's a recurring motif yes. yeah so maybe it's it's both of the things that i was trying to decide between 
Um, Which this this ties into where I wanted to get to the first paragraph here too. Yeah. Because um, this is so th- that that first line. I, I just want to say that first line is just fantastic. Right. Um, and when when I got this this book and you had prepared it for the podcast i i opened it up to just that first line and i was like oh you're stupid (laughs) um so a story has no beginning or end arbitrarily one chooses that moment of experience from which to look back on to look back or from which to look ahead i say one chooses with the inaccurate pride of a professional writer who when he has been seriously noted at all has been praised for his technical ability but do I, in fact, of my own will, choose that? Uh, and goes on, or did these images choose me? Um, but if I had believed then in a god, I could also have believed in a hand plucking at my elbow, a suggestion. Speak to him, he hasn't seen you yet. So this concept of, um, which is another aspect of this Manichaeism, is that bound will uh, that there is no such thing as free will. Yeah. So he's saying, I choose this, but, but did I? And right. this, this concept of, and this is, this is getting right into this, um, postmodernist sort of idea too, of the writer as God. Um, and so he's talking about himself as this professional writer who has this technical ability. So he does in theory, make all these choices, but does he, or, uh, is he bound by something outside of himself, God, or this uh, hand plucking at his elbow um, that's, uh, that's pushing him in this way? So this, this choice, right. uh, does that exist? And so the, the question of, uh, you know, as C.S. Lewis would put it, a chess match between himself and God, <laughs> or, or um, I think God uh, you, uh, having a fox hunt with him or something like that. So it's that idea of that competition before um, before God. But uh, here, Green with Bendrix's aspect here, it's it, I don't think it's as much of a, a, a contest. It's just um, that God maneuvers these things according to his will that no human has any say in. And so he even uses that very negative to create the opposite very positive and they are almost yin and yang to one another right (laughs) uh coexisting i i don't know there's there's a lot there that's going on in in all of just those first two and last paragraphs yeah absolutely uh and i a thing i that i noticed i think on this read through that i didn't catch or at least didn't think about the first read through in that last paragraph Specifically is, uh, um, you know, the, the, the ending prayer where he says, I'm too tired and too old to learn to love is almost already contradicted by the fact that he's walking beside Henry towards the evening glass of beer. Yes. Um, oh, yes. Because like that's, you know, it's, it's, there's an interesting motif I've noticed. I noticed it in, uh, Weirdly enough, in the film To Have and Have Not, um, okay. the, it's a Bogart and Bacall film from the 40s, I want to say, based on Hemingway's novel. But, um, you know, it's another mid-century story of, like, men who think of themselves as too tough or too old to, to learn to love. Uh, and there's this, this 
motif that seems like it recurs a lot. I, I'm not giving it to Hemingway. It might be a product of the sure. film. Um, or it might not be, but it's it's this idea that love is choosing to do things that you don't have to do or that there's no um, uh, efficient reason that you should do. Uh, using that word efficiency as, as like Jacques Ellul might, the idea that, you know... Oh, you know, it's it's almost anti uh, uh, anti survival of the fittest in a way, um, sure. or it doesn't make sense purely on on those those uh, um, mechanistic lines or or uh, whatever. The idea that the the most the the loving action is the thing that that you have no self interest in. I guess is what I'm probably the simpler way mm-hmm. to to say what I'm trying to say is. Uh, uh, you know, you're 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 not with Henry because you feel any guilt. You're not with Henry because you know you're certainly not trying to get into his pants. Like Sarah's, Sarah's dead. Like this isn't a way into her, but he's still there with Henry. Well, yeah, and like when when Sarah dies, Henry calls Bendrix and he's there. Right. And like just well, and some of that, you know, you could at that point you could argue that Bendrix is driven by grief to to be near Sarah or. Yeah. That he's driven by guilt, that that you know he thinks he owes Henry this for the fact of the affair, or you know one one or another thing like that. But by this point, like all of that has sort of fallen away. Um, I, I I so you're you're touching on a, a subject here that I'm I was thinking about bringing up later, but I think this is a good time to to do it. Sure. And this is a connection that I thought of only after reading the book and then further reflecting upon it. Sure. Um, and that is the connection that I think, I I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if it's direct. It might simply be, um, kind of a parallel sort of thing or just, um, subconscious or maybe I'm making it up, but this book I think has a connection to Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Um, on the very surface of that, it's the 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 idea of a forbidden love right um so that's the first step of it sure but that is the only only the surface i think there's more to it than that and i'm I'm gonna look at just a couple of passages here first is um act five scene three when um romeo has come it's the very end of the play romeo has come to the tomb of juliet where she's fake dead but he doesn't know that and um Paris is outside the tomb, uh, weeping and mourning for Juliet, and they have this fight, and Romeo kills Paris, um, just showing this pure fury towards one another, and I don't think they ever met prior to this moment, Sure, Romeo and Paris. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I think Romeo had heard of Paris. And I think all that Paris had heard of Romeo was that he was a Montague and he was banished. Sure. Anyway, so, like, what what I'm getting at by bringing that up is I think this is a microcosmic sort of picture of what is blown up and ex- uh, explored between Henry and Bendrix in uh, The End of the Affair. Sure. That they start out sort of cordial, but... Um, Romeo is upset by the fact that Paris has something that he 
wants or or is is encroaching on this holy ground <laughs> sure um and by a, then after romeo kills paris um he says i'll bury thee in a triumphant grave and he opens the tomb to juliet so like he he's he's softened towards paris after killing him right. a little bit here um which is related to that uh, that connection between Bendrix and Henry, that, that that softening comes out at the end. But uh, that goes further towards how Bendrix and even Henry see Sarah. And Green does this thing with that duality of um, seeing this, this great holiness within this great wickedness, seeing this great good within this great evil. Um uh combined there where it's it's a little more straightforward in shakespeare um that uh after romeo says he's going to bring paris into juliet's tomb here to give him that that honor he says a grave oh no a lantern slaughtered youth for here lies juliet and her beauty makes this vault a feasting presence full of light uh death lie thou there by a dead man interred uh and so he's talking about Juliet in terms of being this light, which, you know, puts off what light through yonder window breaks. Juliet is the sun. Um, that that uh, she is that light. But um, I'll get back to that idea, too. A um, few lines later, uh, he says, Ah, dear Juliet, why art thou yet so fair? Uh, shall I believe that unsubstantial death is amorous and that the lean of horrid monster keeps thee here in dark to be his paramour? So here Romeo is again uh, jealous of another lover uh, of Juliet's besides Paris. Here's another one, um, which, you know, you could say Paris is the more legitimate uh, in terms of the society that they were in, like Henry is the more legitimate. and But then you've got this more supernatural sort of possession yeah. of her with the paramour. Uh, slash religion for Sarah. I just um, had a flashback yeah. to a, a topic I was, I'm assuming you were hoping I wouldn't bring up, which is you playing Romeo in college. <laughs> uh, I just assume because you're from the upper Midwest and you have that, that uh, modesty that you, you wouldn't want me to point this out, but here we are. Um, I was not going to point that out. <laughs> so uh, for that. But I just, I remember for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just the way you delivered that line or what, but that jumped out at me from that show. Is that line, shall I believe that unsubstantial death is amorous? And it just always struck me as like the most goth line. Oh, yeah. Just just like, you know, you should slap that line on a shirt and sell it at Hot Topic. Um, Right, right. Uh, well, and then you've got the band Paramore, which is... <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that, yes. Yeah, yep, that's, so, so you know, uh, there's there's pass- there's a couple passages in Hamlet, too. Oh, specifically the, um, is it ha- uh, Hamlet's ghost who says, talks about graves opening their mouths or, or graveyard, yeah. graveyards yawn is the phrase uh, that I'm always like, man... Shakespeare clearly had a time machine because he borrowed from T.S. Eliot in that one sonnet and he, you know, jumped forward not quite as far to borrow a bunch of stuff from, like, the gothic, the true gothic romance uh, period of the 17 and early 1800s. Uh, Right. So anyway, that was an excursion within an excursion. That's all right. Well, 
getting back to the main excursion. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to bring up one other passage in relation to uh, the book here. And that's from Act 1, Scene 5. Here we're at the, the, the mask ball um, where Romeo first meets Juliet. And then uh, it's it's the sonnet that they recite together. Right. That um, they, they have these lines back and forth. I, I just want to go through this, this sonnet here and show how it relates to the book um, a bit here. So, Romeo taking Juliet's hand. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Juliet, good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Romeo, have not saints lips, and holy palmer's too? Juliet, I pilgrim lips that they must use in prayer. Romeo, oh then, dear saints, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou lest faith turn to despair. Juliet, saints do not move, though for though grant for prayer's sake. Uh, Romeo, then move not while my prayer's effect I take. Thus from my lips by thine my sin is purged, Juliet. Then have my lips the sin that they have took. Romeo, sin from my lips, O trespass sweetly urged. Give me my sin again. He kisses her again. Juliet, you kiss by the book. Uh, and that's the, the end sure. uh, of their, their sonnet there. So, okay, this, this connection here of um, romantic love being framed in the aspect of prayer and saints and things like that. Um, I don't think Bendrix ever explicitly says it in a way that, like, Sarah is his religion. You know, that's, you know, too corny. Um, no, yeah, he doesn't say it, but it's it's certainly there. Like, it's... It's there. It's on the page, even if it's not on the page, as it were. Right. And and what's more than that, so the, that the lover is the saint that is approached in this way. Um, Sarah becomes a Catholic saint, by the end of this book right 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 like yeah. one of the rules I, I i'm not an expert on this but one of the rules is you have to perform three miracles right. either before or after so um first she raises bendrix from the dead by her prayer right that's her first miracle um and then uh she appears to her um atheist mentor and heals his face right right and then oh, what was the third one there was the um third one. the the child the uh yeah. Child of the detective, uh, right? Got gets a book from Lance. her. Yeah, and when he's ill, and the book has a message that it, it was right. like it's, one of her childhood a, books that she. It's had. a very, it's a wonderful life. Tom Sawyer, Clarence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except you know, it's it's couched in such a way that it's like, oh, she wrote this when she was a child, but it still comes off as a miracle because like, right? How exactly. did that? It's framed that way. Well, and it's like. It's it's one of those things where it's like, is this a coincidence? How believable is that? Even because it's like, heck of a coincidence. Even though the the timeline seems to work out for it to just be that way, but. right? And but but the fact that it it's left with the possibility of it not being a coincidence just shows how much Bendrix is against himself, right? By by the end, he's the narrator. He, you know, for all of his hemming and hawing about how little control he has, he gets to choose how he writes the book. Yeah. Um, that, but you know, even even that, even if he doesn't get the choice, it just shows what's there. Um, by the way he writes it, that that he does have this glimmer of faith in who she is. 
um, the the holiness that she has or, or, or what have you. Um, so he he believes her as a saint and really um, his hatred. So this this record of hate that he has here become unified against both Sarah and God. He hates them both basically equally by the end. Um, so that unifying of the two of them in his mind, I think, shows again how I, I don't know how to put it better, how God has won in the end against Bendrix, right? That's so. I, I mean, that's that's a that's a connection that, I, and and so just that 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 conceit of um, the the lover being viewed as a saint. I don't think that's unique to Romeo and Juliet. Um, I mean, or Shakespeare even. Yeah, it certainly but, it comes down into Shakespeare uh, out of sort of this medieval chivalric yeah. poetry idea that uh, you know J- John Donne is another expression of it where. Um, Mm -hmm. he almost takes the reverse where he, uh, uh, instead of, instead of sort of taking religious imagery and importing it onto the idea of romantic love, he takes romantic love based imagery and, uh, imports it into religion. Uh, the, the most famous example, probably certainly the one that I know of, the best is his sonnet batter my heart three persons god uh hmm. which um the the final couplet of that sonnet is so well okay so it starts out in direct address to god batter my heart three persons god for you as yet but not breathe shine and seek to mend um and uh then he, you know, later in the sonnet, he says, "Dearly, I love you, and would be loved fain, as in loved in return, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me." Which is like, especially if it, it, the more you know about sort of the the religious fervor and and. Uh, uh you know commitments and ideas of the era is like a heck of a a uh line to to you you know it's it's literally uh uh using this this explicitly sexual imagery to describe you know uh uh an encounter with god with the the spiritual with the salvation um and you know again that that's Shakespeare and Dunn both both get that out of this this like I said medieval chivalric uh, courtly love idea that became very almost formalized and and codified, um, and it's it's replete with with some of these these metaphors and reverse metaphors and and such things. Um, mm. I don't know. I, I recently read Peter Aykroyd's translation of the Canterbury tales and, and it shows things like this show up in that, um, uh, numerous times. Um, and you know, Graham Greene to, to actually tie this all together, uh, you know, is, is he, he's almost a product, uh, flushed out the other end of that, that 500 year, 700 year set of literary traditions. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I don't, I don't 
want to claim that like he explicitly meant the passages from Romeo and Juliet that you quoted or no or even done or anything but like he's he's being a product of the British school systems and and British higher education in the period that he was was educated by them uh he'd certainly be familiar with all with Shakespeare with Dunn with all kinds of products of this this sort of uh you know that that go back to this this medieval uh tradition of courtly love and of mixing courtly love and and religion religious uh convictions and and imagery and and so forth um right so you know there's there's, it's it's not a stretch to to say that you know if, if even if you even if we with the relatively small amount of scholarship we've done can't prove that these things are descendants of each other they're certainly you know kissing cousins yeah they're related in some yeah, in some way exactly um and and that's uh but but what uh, green does is he takes it another step within this this tradition now and uh not just courtly love but the end of the affair and right. the the hatred that's accompanied with this is also given that religious element um that's like equal to the courtly love right uh you know and it's it's almost like that's almost the logical place that he has to go with it maybe even in this in this particular period because um you know this book came out in 1951 you know it has to do with world war ii and there's this there's this great literature of disillusionment that came out of world war one right uh you're mm-hmm. you know you're uh you're the wastelands and uh you know a whole a whole ton of of um literature that's very much about alienation and disillusionment and the idea you know it's uh uh world war one as a european apocalypse is an idea that i think more people are are grasping but for a long time it went i think underappreciated um, the idea that just intellectually and culturally, World War One was the apocalypse of a European civilization that, in some ways, was fifteen hundred years old, um, or in some ways was maybe two to three thousand years old if you if you push it back far enough to be in the in the Roman Empire and in, in uh, the Greek literary world. Uh, in in a very real way, 19, that period of nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen ended all of that. Ended that whole affair. Um, (laughs) and, you know, historically speaking, you know, we, we know a lot and talk a lot about World War II in our culture and, you know, certainly, uh, not that the two of us could, but certainly you shouldn't ever like dismiss the impact of World War II. But as far as historical root causes go, World War II was almost an aftershock of World War I. Um, Like if you're yeah. if you're viewing history the way Gene Wolfe has said he views history or viewed history uh, as like we living now are contemporaries of Mark Twain and Herodotus, um, from that perspective, you know, ten thousand years in the future, uh, if you're picking, you know, assuming continuity of of narrative and historical records, if you're picking single events from this century from the 20th century or like the period between the 10th and 20th centuries like world war one is the one that you're gonna pick um yes like that's gonna be the chapter heading and world war ii and the atomic bombs like those are gonna be part of that chapter 
So that being said, like this being after World War II, after what felt like maybe even the second apocalypse, the second even bigger apocalypse, yeah. uh, uh, you know, we're at this this place, spiritually speaking, where everything that that's built on love seems like it may have turned to hate. So sure. in in that way, it it almost like Green's Green's a. Uh, Manichaeanism, uh, yep. in the way that we've talked about it, like, it makes perfect sense. Like, you know, oh, if, yeah. if there's any meaning left at all, maybe it's the reverse of of what we thought it was. And frankly, at that point, like, if you're, if you're thinking about it from that angle, uh, the persistence of Catholicism, the persistence of, you know, uh, uh, people even playing with these ideas or struggling with these ideas seems almost miraculous or seems almost yes inexplicable like or unbelievable God. yeah exactly yeah um and you know the, the, uh uh green apparently thought that he was trying to f- force bendix into belief at the end of the book he wasn't very satisfied with the end of the book um sure and we we can talk about that next episode because i i don't want to just dismiss it here right at the end of this one but i what i want to say is i'm not trying to force anybody to do that but i think that all of that is very much tied into the cultural moment and the cultural uh, and historical narrative that produced this book you, the, by by going on that discourse about the war here you've actually brought up an idea here that is tying together a lot of what we've discussed in this episode in a, a revelation of sorts so thinking about the 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 aftershocks of world war 1 world war 2 all and thinking of it as apocalyptic in in its scope in its uh, effects right and like an act of god like the well any 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 of the effects being like an act of god here both the, the negative and the positive uh that you might start looking for why does God do those sorts of acts? And when has he done those sorts of acts in the past? (laughs) And if you're a good Christian sort, you might go and start looking at like when uh, Israel was taken into exile and taken captive by Babylon, looking at some of the minor prophets and stuff. Sure. And if you go to something like Hosea, what you're going to find is that God frames his relationship with Israel, much like a husband and a wife uh, and accusing his wife, Israel of um, playing the whore, chasing after lovers uh and all of this it's like you know that 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 tradition of of looking at uh the the religious relationship and the romantic relationship as being sort of united here god invented that um Um, uh, yeah uh well and and that ties directly into the text of this book that's not really even an excursion Okay. okay um which i know because uh one of the the few i meant to do more highlights as i almost always do but one of the few highlights i did make in this book uh comes it's section seven of or chapter seven of book one so uh bottom of 31 i believe in our edition i think our page numbers should be the same anyway uh Jealousy, or so I have always believed, exists only with desire. The Old Testament writers were fond of using the words, a jealous God, and perhaps it was their rough and oblique way of expressing belief in the love of God for man. Um, You know, and and that's that's another one. I think I highlighted 
uh, again, so uh, the the opening of book two, um, we right in the middle of of the opening paragraph. But happiness annihilates us. We lose our identity. The words of human love have been used by the saints to describe their vision of God. And so I suppose we might use the terms of prayer, meditation, contemplation to explain the intensity of love we feel for a woman. So there's your, you know, Sarah is is Bendix's... Yep. You know, we too surrender memory, intellect, intelligence, and we too experience the deprivation, the noche oscura, uh, and sometimes as a reward, a kind of peace. Uh, and, and then just skipping down a couple, um, uh, a sentence or two, um, well, actually just skipping one sentence. It is odd to find myself writing these phrases as though I love what in fact I hate. Yeah. Uh, so again, there's that struggle. Sometimes I don't recognize my own thoughts. What do I know of phrases like the dark night or of prayer? Who have only one prayer. I have inherited them, that is all. Like a husband who is left by death in the useless possession of a woman's clothes, scents, pots of scream pots of cream. And yet there was this peace. Uh so that's you know, that's almost echoing things that we were both just saying. You know, there's there's a yeah. lot of that that I mean, again, Sarah as his religion, um, but there's also that idea of inheritance that, you know, he's he's again if 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 what I was saying has any merit to it, you know, you could you could view that as this inheritance of the culture and the and the tradition, the literature of Europe. Yeah. Um, that that you know this this uh, religiosity, you know, seems like a, a dead woman's clothes, scents, and pots of cream. Um, and again, and I think this is what ties into the end and makes it maybe not quite as as bad as a green thought it was but the idea that yet there was this piece like as a, whether as a reader you buy the the miracles so-called that that sarah uh is attributed whether right. you think that's too far too much um it's a description of a very real experience uh, an experience of peace an experience of of uh uh you know, religious transcendence that does permeate throughout this this culture and this heritage. Um, and it's difficult to explain away. It's difficult to explain, you know, explain it as drugs or as a euphoria created by the brain, or as, it's difficult to explain it as anything, almost in the same way that it's difficult to explain why it's so right that in the last sentence here... Uh, you know, Bendix is, is, or in the last paragraph anyway, Bendix is walking with Henry towards their evening glass of beer. Yep. Ugh. Well, I think that's as good a spot as any to uh, end this episode. Sure. Uh, that's that's just half of our discussion on this book, gentle listener. <laughs> Um, so yes, we are going to do one more episode discussing The End of the Affair by Graham Greene, and then we're never going to mention it again. Yep, I'm sure that's um, true. That's, that's how that's going to work. Uh, so give us your feedback on the book, uh, or any of our books, uh, or any books that you've ever read or wanted to read. Give us your feedback on it. Go to tapestryradio.org, find the contact section in the menu up at the top, put Scotch Talk in the subject line so that uh, we know which uh, podcast you're talking to. You can find us on Twitter at Room with Scotch. 
Uh, you can find us on Facebook, request to join the Tapestry Radio Tap House, and we will let you in because we have no choice in the matter. <laughs> um, we're also going to do your homework. If you submit it uh, on our website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, fill out the form there. We'll do that homework, and you can turn that into your teacher, and we'll laugh at you as you get hauled away to plagiarism jail. If you like this podcast, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the Fiasco RPG Actual Play Improv Podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, the Freddy the Pig Children's Book Series Discussion Podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Uh, so that others can learn about the show. Ethan, where can they find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at Bjartlett. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. My last name is Bartlett, and I was doing a Bjork joke because it was 10th grade, and now I'm stuck with it. Ha. And I... No, go ahead. Sorry. I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. So until next time, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if Graham Greene makes us, if you will. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.